Welcome to North Main Street Church of God's uh, morning broadcast. Uh, it's Sunday, March the 22nd, and this is our second sermon online, so I'm glad you're joining with us this morning. Um, hopefully this morning you've had an opportunity to wake up, get, get uh, ready for the Lord's Day, and in the process you've been able to maybe sing some songs of worship, uh, hopefully you've been able to uh, to get ready. If you're sitting in your PJs, what better way to go to church? Cup of coffee next to you. If you're sitting together as a family, uh, what a better way? Uh, what better way to have service than than this this morning? Um, I just want to encourage you today again, as we've kind of been captive in our own homes. Some of you are probably getting stir crazy. Uh, I know our family is definitely getting stir crazy. There's six of us at home and. Uh, uh, the kids are at each other's throats every so often uh, throughout the day, so it's been a little challenging. But my words of encouragement to you are this. Uh, this is temporary. Uh, this will not last forever. Um, just so stiff upper lip, uh, keep going strong. Um, and next thing is this, too. Uh, you guys did an amazing job with tithes and offerings last week. Uh, as you know, churches are hard-pressed to survive without tithes and offerings and income. And uh, it's probably one of the bigger fears of most pastors over these next few weeks is uh, financial faith and, and monetary support from the congregation. You guys did an amazing job last week. Thank you so much for giving online. Uh, if you're unable to give online, you can mail uh, your check uh, or cash to North Main Street Church of God. Or there's another option this week. Again, uh, if you want to give online, you can go to www.northmaincog.org. We also, this week, actually have a text-to-give function that uh, uh, our, our trusty finance guy set up, Dave Wilson. And uh, on your phone, start a text message uh, to 3013. Uh, and in the text message, enter the amount that you would like to give. For example, $20, you'd do a dollar sign and two zero, uh, or you could just do two zero. Uh, then enter N-M-G-I-V-E. Your message will look like this. It'll look like two zero N-M-G-I-V-E. So if you want to try that out this morning, uh, you're welcome to do that. We have given it a trial run. It does work. Uh, so having said that, let me start us this morning with a word of prayer and I'll get into our message. Heavenly Father, thank you for being with us uh, as we're apart in our homes. God, thank you for blessing us and encouraging us. I pray that you would uh, allay any of the fears that people are still having, anxieties, all the crazy stir craziness of being at home as a family. Uh, not being able to get out as much as we normally would. I pray that you would keep people safe. Thank you, God, for meeting with us, even in, in times like this, when we're all in our individual homes, but enjoying uh, corporate uh, worship together and a sermon together. Thank you, God. We love you. Amen. So last week, I, I broke from the sermon series to give you an encouraging word from Psalm 91, but I want to jump back in to our series this morning. We've been in a series 
on joy this whole year. And this month's theme has been joy in the promise. And we've been looking, as we've been doing our daily readings, uh, at the Israelites in, in the promised land. They've now come into the promised land, and, and, and you would assume that their lives would get better, everything would be good, but what they're doing is they're not actually living up to God's commands and, and precepts. And so everything starts going off the rails. And so uh, this morning, as you turn in your Bibles to um, 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 17, we're going to be taking a look at, uh, at this passage of scripture where uh, Samuel is, is the judge and he's also a prophet of the people. And he's speaking uh, directly to the people about getting rid of their idolatry and trying to turn their hearts back to God. Uh, the title of today's message is Lost Joy Returned. And, um, and like I said, we'll be turning in the scripture in a moment as I reference it. Author J.K. Johnston writes this, and I think this is really good this morning, is don't, do not hastily ascribe things to God. Let me say that one more time. Do not hastily ascribe things to God. Do not easily suppose dreams, voices, impressions, visions, or revelations are from him. They may be from him. They may be from nature. They may be from the devil. So in this time, as we're thinking about the coronavirus and all that, I have heard so many different things going on online. I've read so many different articles recently, especially by a lot of faith leaders across our nation at this point. And some are saying that the coronavirus is a judgment of God. Uh, some are saying that it's discipline. And, and it, you know what? It very well may be. I don't want to shortchange God or say he can't do that. But I don't want to hastily ascribe these kind of things to God. So how do we then determine or understand the will of God? Which is the question I want to ask this morning as we talk about lost joy returning back to the promised people and back to the hearts of the uh, of people of God. Um, what is the will of God? How do we discern it? How do we know what is and isn't from God or whether it's from something else, maybe even the devil? How can we make sense of everything in the world and still maintain a sense of hope and joy? Right now, you're probably struggling with hope and joy because you're cooped up and maybe everybody in your household is at each other's throats right now. How do you maintain a sense of, of hope and joy in the midst of crisis? Um, when all hope seems lost, the question is, what should we do in the midst of distress and uncertainty? So as we can continue our series this morning on Join the Promise, we come to this continuing saga of the Israelites in the Promised Land. They've been separated now uh, into their different groupings, you know, uh, Naphtali, Zebulun, uh, the tribe of Dan, Judah. They're all in their various different territories in the nation of Israel. And we noticed two weeks ago, we we, we noticed there was a cycle that the Israelites were going through once they have settled now in the land. And, that's, and that cycle is, first starts with sin, it goes on to this slavery, then we would call it supplication or repentance, and then salvation. And you see this cycle all the way through the book of Judges. And even when we come into the book of Samuel, you're seeing this cycle constantly happening. Honestly, as, as uh, Solomon says in the book of Ecclesiastes, there is nothing new under the sun. This seems to happen 
throughout all generations at all times, not just with the Israelites in the book of Judges or Samuel or Kings or Chronicles, all the way through to Jesus' time, we see it happening today. This level of sin that seems to uh, take over in people's lives and we allow ourselves to be given over to temptation and sin, which leads us to become slaves to sin or the consequences of sin. And then we get to the point, or at least many of us get to the point, where when we've hit rock bottom in that slavery to sin, we realize there's nowhere else to go but up. And so we turn our hearts and our faces back to God and we say, God, please forgive me. I'm a sinner. I need you back in my life. Which leads us then back to this place of salvation and hope. Um, we come upon the people in in uh, in the book of Samuel chapter seven. They have been so captivated at this point in chapter seven by slavery to sin. Uh, they're starting to experience some of the loss of what it means to be the people of God, and, and are incurring all of this different kind of punishment and consequence because of their sin, and now. Samuel is beckoning them, turn your hearts back to God. And so they do. And there's this moment of salvation that begins to lift up again the people of God in the book of Samuel. So if you will, turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. We're going to be reading through that here in the next few minutes. And I'll be reading from the New Living Testament. You can read from whatever version you're comfortable with. It may be a little different than what I'm reading. So verse 1. So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came to get the ark of the Lord. They took it to the hillside of Abinadab, an or hillside home of Abinadab, and ordained Eleazar, his son, to be in charge of it. So where had the ark been up to this point? Well, 20 years prior to this circumstance, <clears throat> it had, uh, or, or 20 years prior to the reading of this scripture, uh, it had been captured by the Philistines. And the Philistines had realized it had become such a burden to hold on to that they decided to send it back to the Israelites. And so they put it on an, a, a cart drawn by two young oxen and sent it off in the direction of Jerusalem or Israel, if you will. And when they sent it off, uh, they, they sent offerings of gold, uh, golden tumors. They made impressions of golden tumors and those kind of things just because of the plagues that God had sent upon them for stealing the ark. It reached back, it reached its destination back to the people of Israel, and it ends up being in the home or the hillside home of Abinadab at this point, and it's left in the care of Eleazar, his son. So let's go to verse 2. The ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim for a long time, 20 years in all, during that time, all Israel mourned because it seemed the Lord had abandoned them. Now, God was not the Ark of the Covenant. He was not that, that golden box that contained the tablets that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai. God was not that box. But he promised them that his presence would rest above that, that Ark in the Holy of Holies when the people came to worship him, that he would come down and meet with them in that place. So that was kind of the destination of connecting with the people in the tabernacle at that time. And so now the ark is gone. The ark is in this home. It's not 
in the place where it should be, the tabernacle. And so the people are upset. They're sad. They're heartbroken over the fact that they believe that God has now left them and that they are, um, they are alone and without God. Then Samuel, it says in verse 3, said to all the people of Israel, if you're really serious about wanting to return to the Lord, then get rid of your foreign gods and your images of Ashtoreth. Determine to obey only the Lord, then he will rescue you from the Philistines. So the Israelites got rid of their images of Baal and Ashtoreth, and they worshipped only the Lord. See, this is that cycle now. They're at this place of slavery to sin. They think God's abandoned them, and they're turning their hearts back to God by the instruction of the prophet Samuel, telling them, if you really want God to come back, if you're serious about this, then you need to do these things. Then Samuel told them, gather all of Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah, and in a great ceremony, they drew water from a well and poured it out before the Lord. They also went without food all day, and they confessed that they had sinned against the Lord. It was at Mizpah that Samuel became Israel's judge. So they're there at Mizpah, as Samuel had instructed. Samuel's there praying on their behalf to the Lord, so that God would come back and bless his people again. And they poured out, almost like a drink offering, it's not wine, they poured out water to show that they themselves were being poured out on behalf of God. They were at his mercy. Verse 7, When the Philistine rulers heard that Israel had gathered at Mizpah, they mobilized their army and advanced. The Israelites were badly frightened when they learned that the Philistines were approaching. Don't stop pleading to the Lord, our God, to save us from the Philistines, they begged Samuel. So Samuel took a young lamb and offered it to the Lord as a whole burnt offering. He pleaded with the Lord to help Israel, and the Lord answered him. find it interesting that the Philistines saw the Israelites gathering at Mizpah, whether it's their spies seeking out to, to find this knowledge or however they found out, they found out that the Israelites were all gathering together. The Philistines thought they're getting ready to come and make war with us. And so the Philistines did a preemptive strike and they decided they're going to go to Mizpah and, and cut them off and counter whatever attack they think the Israelites are planning. But the Israelites are gathered there for the purpose of meeting with God on behalf of Samuel's uh, suggestion, let's go there, let's meet with God, I'll pray on your behalf. They find out the Philistines are coming and they beg Samuel all the more, pray to God, pray to God on our behalf that he will protect us. So, verse 10, just as Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines arrived to attack Israel, but the Lord spoke with a mighty voice of thunder from heaven that day, and the Philistines were thrown into such confusion that the Israelites defeated them. The men of Israel chased them from Mizpah to the place below beth slaughtering them all along the way. Samuel then took a large stone and placed it between the towns of Mizpah and Jeshana. He named it Ebenezer, which means stone of help. For he said, up to this point, the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and they didn't invade Israel again for some time. And throughout 
Samuel's lifetime, the Lord's powerful hand was raised against the Philistines. The Israelite villages near Akron and Gath and the Philistines that had captured were restored to Israel along with the rest of the territory that the Philistines had taken. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites in those days. Samuel continued as Israel's judge for the rest of his life. Each year he traveled around setting up his court, first at Bethel, then at Gilgal, then at Mizpah. He judged the people of Israel at each of these places throughout his lifetime. Then he would return to his home at Ramah, and he would hear cases there too. And Samuel built an altar to the Lord at Ramah. So what's the key point this morning? Where do we go from here? Sometimes the loss of joy is due to the fact that we are out of the will of God. Remember, the Israelites were... were wondering, has God abandoned us? Their joy was gone. Their hope was gone. Where is God in the midst of all this? And, and Samuel said, if you're serious about really wanting the Lord to be with you, then here's what you need to do. You need to repent. So the people came, they fasted, they poured out a drink offering, this water to God, showing that they were truly serious about repenting. And they mourned and wept for their own, for their own sins. And we see hope coming back because God shows them through the victory against the Philistines that he has now returned and become victorious through them once again. He's protected them. Consider, consider the words of C.S. Lewis. And, and I want you to consider this as we finish our, our points this morning in, in this message. And that is this, that C.S. Lewis says, Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he can't imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday or at the sea. He says we are far too easily pleased. And I wonder if we're not that way today. We maybe aren't pushed so far to where the Israelites were, where they were at the bottom of the barrel. But I think we're pretty darn close as a nation and as a people, maybe even as a church in our society and the American culture. We're at this place where is God really present with us? Has God abandoned us? Has he left us? And maybe this time now, during the situation that has put us in being at our homes, watching this online, is a wake-up call to the rest of us to say, God, have you abandoned us? Maybe, just maybe, if we turn our hearts to God, if we call out to him, if we cry out to him the way the Israelites did, the way that, the way that Samuel did at Mizpah, he will hear us. Yes, I'm sure the enemy will hear us too. And he will not go quietly into the night. So it doesn't mean it won't get more difficult. But if God is on our side, who could be against us? So let's look. What changed the Israelites from contentment with mud pies in the slum, continuing in their idolatry, doing the things that they had once done, to finally coming to the point where they said, we want God back. We, we, are, we are done. We, we don't want to do this stuff anymore. We want to come back to God. What caused them to turn from their idolatry and sin and turn back to God? What were the conditions of their circumstances? 
Well, here are two considerations this morning. And the first one is this. Consider the condition and the place of the Ark of the Covenant. Where was the Ark of the Covenant supposed to be? If you read throughout the whole Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant was created to exist and to be placed in this, in this place within the tabernacle or later on in the temple that was in Jerusalem in a room called the innermost room of the temple or the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies. It was separated by a huge, thick curtain, and only the high priest could go behind that curtain once a year and offer a uh, sacrifice to God, or on behalf of the people, to offer a sacrifice uh, on behalf of God. To hopefully hear from God, be with God, and witness God. Where was the Ark of the Covenant for 20 years? Well, God withdrew his presence. The Ark as a box, had been hauled off by the Philistines. The Philistines weren't supposed to have it, and God's judgment came down on them for stealing it. He sent plagues upon them. He knocked over their gods because they placed uh, the Ark of the Covenant in one of their temples to Dagon, D-A-G-O-N, the god of Dagon. Guess what happened? The, the statue standing next to the Ark of the Covenant in their temple fell over and broke into mul multiple pieces. They said, this is too much trouble. So they sent it back on a cart, like I mentioned earlier. Once it got back to the Israelites, whatever reason, it was never put back in the tabernacle. Can you imagine that? Its resting place was supposed to be in the Holy of Holies. That's where God had said for it to be. It was a command for God to put it there and leave it there. And that's where I will meet with you. But it was in kiriath Jerim at Abinadab's house, and his son Eleazar was ordained to take charge of it, to watch over it. It wasn't where it was supposed to be. Now, I'm sure Eleazar took good care of it. I'm not, I don't read anything in here. It says that he, uh, he, he left it neglected, but the Israelite people left it neglected. It wasn't where it was supposed to be. So here's a question this morning is this. How often do we do that? How often do we find ourselves um, not allowing God to have the centermost place in our hearts? You see, God wants all of us, not just part of us. He doesn't want just some of our lives. He, want all, he wants all of our lives. Where is the ark or the presence of God today in your life? Or is he? Because if he's not, he doesn't have resonance in your life. Maybe he has abandoned because you've decided you don't want him in your life. Or maybe he's withdrawn or abandoned because abandoned you because you've rejected him some point in time in your life and you've never welcomed him back in. That's a problem. And you can't just have him close enough that you feel comfortable like the Israelites did. They said, okay, the ark's back. We'll leave it in this guy's home. Seriously? It was supposed to be the center and the place of worship for the Israelite people. Just as today, when we believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit takes residence in our hearts, we become the temple of the Holy God. So much so that his presence rests within us. See, I don't think God leaves just on a whim. I think he's long-suffering. I think he's patient. I think he desires to be with us. 
But God will only put up with so much nonsense and so much sin and so much rejection. We've read, read that all the way throughout the Old Testament. We, we can see that. He will only put up with so much of that till he says, fine, I'll let you have what you want to have because obviously you don't want me the way you think you do. And he can withdraw himself from a place or from a person. Now you're probably thinking, oh my gosh, has he withdrawn from me? The question is, have you withdrawn from him? And if you've withdrawn from him, why? Is there any action, any unrepentant sin in your life? Maybe you need to fast and pray like the Israelites did at Mizpah. Maybe you need to say, God, truly, I repent. I'm, I'm sorry for what I've done. Come and come. let that lost joy of the hope of God return back to my heart and back to my life. Is that where you are this morning? So, second point is this. Consider the condition and the focus of the hearts of Israel. What was the condition? So it, the condition of the ark was, it wasn't where it was supposed to be. It wasn't at the heart of worship, heart of the place of worship for the people in the Holy of Holies at the tabernacle. It just wasn't there. So that was the condition of the ark. What, what was the condition of the heart, though, and the focus of the people of Israel? Consider the words of Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry is a commentator from a long time ago. The uh, Well, I'll say a long time ago, the 1800s. And uh, so these are old words. It's written in old English prose, but bear with me as I read you the words from Matthew Henry on this passage of Scripture from 1 Samuel chapter 7. Considering the words of Matthew Henry, he writes this. How evil sometimes seems to come out of good. Have you ever tried to do, this is the question I put in the margins here. Have you ever tried to do the right thing and bad things seems to happen all the more? That's what he's saying here. How evil sometimes seems to come out of good. The religious meeting of the Israelites at Mizpah brought trouble upon them from the Philistines, which perhaps tempted them to wish that they had stayed home and blame Samuel for calling them together. But we may be in God's way, and yet meet with distress. Nay, he says, when sinners begin to repent and reform, they must expect Satan will muster all his forces against them and set his instruments on work to the, most, to the utmost to oppose and discourage them. As you hear what he's saying? Sometimes when we do the right thing, when we put ourselves to devoting ourselves to God, repenting of our sins, and truly turning over a new leaf and saying, God, I'm coming back to you, the enemy doesn't go quietly. He will sometimes wrap, ramp up his tactics and push in even harder. And sometimes God will allow him to do that, to test and see whether our resolve to worship God is stronger than our willingness to give up when the going gets tough. So where are you? What, what, is, what does that look like for you? He goes on to write in his commentary, Matthew Henry does, How good is at length brought out of that evil? Israel could never be threatened more seasonably than this time. They'd all gather together to humble themselves before God. When they were repenting and praying, nor could they have been better prepared to receive the real enemy, nor could the Philistines have acted more impolitely for themselves than to make war upon Israel at this time when they were making their peace with God. 
But listen what happens. But God permitted them to do it. God permitted the Philistines to press in and to charge in on the Israelites, that he might have an opportunity immediately of crowning his people's reformation with tokens of his favor and conforming the words of his messenger who had assured them that if they repented, God would deliver them out of the hands of the Philistines. He's saying, what better time for God to show that he had not abandoned them but had come back to him than in this moment of testing when the Philistines were rushing at them at this time of their most humble uh, appointment before God. And Samuel beckoning on behalf of the people to God to forgive their sins. What better time could this be? Thus, he goes on to say, he makes man's wrath to praise him and he serves the purposes of his grace to his people even by the malicious designs of their enemies against them. Here's the cool thing about all of this. If you are willing to press into God, he is willing to stand up and fight for you. Sometimes even when we aren't able to ask God some of those things when we're at our weakest, his grace is also sufficient for us because he knows your heart. He knows what you're thinking and feeling. And he's willing to stand in the gap for you. So when the enemy ramps up his tactics, where's your heart? Where's your focus? I think again, and I bring this up often when I'm, when I'm preaching uh, on stage, is that you remember what happened to Peter when Jesus was walking on the water and all the disciples were scared because they thought Jesus was a ghost walking on the water in the early morning hours before sunrise? The wind and waves are crashing in at the boat and, 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 and they see Jesus coming and he says, don't worry, it's just me. And Peter says, Jesus, if it's really you, call me to come out to you on the water. And what does Peter do? What does Jesus say? Jesus says, come on out. And Peter steps out. And we see the miraculous happening because God hasn't abandoned him. Jesus is right there with him. And Jesus is causing him to do the seemingly impossible. Peter is walking on water to Jesus. But what happens when his heart and his focus gets turned away from the eyes of Jesus? It says in the Gospels, he begins to sink amidst the wind and the waves because he sees the wind and the waves, the troubles, all of that stuff happening. And instead of focusing on Christ in the midst of the storm, he's focusing on the storm. See, the Israelites, they started to focus on the Philistines coming and they were fearful, but they did the right thing by saying to Samuel, please continue to pray to God for us. They didn't take up arms. They decided the best course of action would be to beg Samuel to pray even harder. So that's the question. What is the condition of your heart? Where are you this morning? Do you want the lost joy to return to you? It can't happen unless you are fully dedicated and fully surrendered to the heart of God and to the things of God. I'm not saying that you don't struggle with depression or anxiety or addiction or any other temptation that may come your way. But see, God is faithful because he's always given us a way out of these things. 
So what do we do in the midst of these challenges when the enemy continues to press in through whatever tactics that he uses? We continue to press into God all the more. We have to change our focus to reorient ourselves back to the heart of God and press into God all the more. See, I think right now at this time, while each of us are gathered in our homes this morning, we're being challenged. Is being the church important to us? Or is it more important that we come and coalesce in a building? You see, God doesn't inhabit buildings made by men. God inhabits the hearts and the praises of his people. So God is with us even now as we are corporately worshiping and, and listening to God's word together online, no matter where you're at in the community right now. God is here. God is with us. Where two or more gather in his name. That doesn't mean at one specific location. Because of our technology, we are all gathered in his name this morning across the community and probably even farther reaching than just Butler, Pennsylvania. So what do we do in the midst of the crisis? What do we do in the midst of all of this? We should take heart. We need to remember the words of Jesus speaking to his disciples, reminding them that tough times would come their way. Jesus in the, in the Gospel of John, the red letters of Jesus, John chapter 16, was telling his disciples, I'm going to go away for a while, but I'll come back to get you someday. Don't worry, I'm going to prepare a place for you. He says that in John chapter 14. And then we continue to John chapter 16. And then he encourages them with some tough, tough encouragement. Listen to this. But the time is coming, verse 32 and 33 of John chapter 16. But the time is coming, indeed it is here now, when you will be scattered, each one going his own way, leaving me alone. He's talking to the 12 disciples specifically about how I'm going to be arrested and all of you guys will scatter and leave me alone. You guys will go to different places because of your own fear of being arrested and I'll be left alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. Do you see, Jesus is saying to them, you may leave me, but the God the Father is with me. I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here's the encouraging thing of it. He says, I know you guys are going to mess up royally. I'm just letting you know that in advance. It's going to happen. But I also want you to know to have peace in me. You will have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows. Do you, do you hear? It's almost like a promise. Here on earth, you will have many trials and problems. Is that a surprise? Is this a surprise when that is those challenges come our way? It, it shouldn't be because Jesus promised us it was going to happen. You will have many trials and sorrows. But then he says this. I love this because here's the better promise. Take heart. Because I, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. So let me close with this this morning. Is what will our Ebenezer be? What is your Ebenezer this morning? What is your stone of help this morning? The same place that is this memorial, this Ebenezer, this stone of help was set up that same place for the Philistines. What, what is your Ebenezer? It's the very same place uh, that the Philistines just 20 years earlier had defeated 
had defeated the Israelites and taken the Ark of God. But then they sent the Ark back on a cart. And whenever the Philistines came and started to try to attack the Israelites at Mizpah 20 years after they had taken the Ark, God had not abandoned them. He'd come back. And he'd empowered them to fight the good fight of faith. Thus, Samuel sets up this memorial stone reminding the people, God has come. He hasn't abandoned us. He's back. He's with you. So don't leave him again. Don't worship idols. Don't give in to temptations. Don't give in to sin. Let me close with this last comment. Finally, I love what the commentator, again, Matthew Henry, says of Samuel in this conclusion, in his conclusion on this passage. Listen, these are words he's saying about the prophet Samuel. Samuel was a protector and a deliverer to Israel. Not by dint of sword as Gideon or by strength of arm by Samson, but by the power of prayer to God in carrying on a work of reformation among the people. Religion, he says, religion and piety are the best securities of a nation. Let me say that again. Samson was not mighty with the sword. He wasn't as strong as Samson. Samson's greatest strength was prayer. I think that made him one of the greatest judges over Israel and one of the greatest prophets over Israel. And he says about the securities of a nation come through religion and piety. Now, religion in, in Matthew Henry's day meant something different than we use it today. Religion being the Christian faith for him and piety being holiness, living a godly, holy life. So let's, let's read it this way. Being of Christian faith, and living a holy life to God are the best securities for a nation. I agree with that. Sometimes the loss of joy is due to the fact that we are out of the will of God. This morning, as I close in prayer, if you're out of the will of God, if you've been struggling to maintain a level of hope and joy in your life, why don't you let that, let that lost joy return? Maybe it's time to fast and pray. God, I've turned from you. I've rejected you. If I haven't verbally rejected you, maybe my actions have rejected you. And I ask you, uh, God, to come into my life and clean me and make my sins as white as snow. Maybe that's the prayer you need to pray this morning. Whatever the case, I'm going to lead a word of prayer. And I hope that you will pray this prayer of faith where you are this morning and allow God to do a transforming work in your life, just like he did with the Israelites. In 1 Samuel chapter 7, let him fight the good fight of faith with you as you fight the good fight of faith for him. Let's pray. Father, I love you. We all love you. There are those of us in our homes this morning watching this broadcast that are struggling with not having hope or joy, especially during this season, being cooped up at home, not being able to go to work or school or different places. Sure, the nuance and the joy of, of having a few days off is good, but it wears off quickly when we feel confined. So God, remind us 
of the hope and the joy that can only come through the freedom of having Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of our lives. I pray that anyone who's listening to these words over the airwaves, over um, YouTube or Facebook right now, God would truly turn their hearts to you, would surrender their lives to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let me say a word of prayer with you. If you're not a believer in Christ and you're listening to this broadcast this morning, I would like to lead you in a prayer. This prayer is not going to save you. It's the change of heart that will save you. But maybe you don't know how to pray that prayer. So let me lead you in a word of prayer and you can repeat after me. Dear Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I am a sinner. I've sinned against you and I've rejected you. But Jesus, I ask you to come and take residence within me. Come live in my heart. I repent of all my sins. And I ask you to take residence in me. Thank you, God, for saving me. Thank you for giving me hope and joy. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Not only if you prayed that prayer, but if you believed it in your heart, and you will confess that with your lips, you know that you're saved and that Jesus has come into your life and made you into a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Welcome to the family of God. Tune in next week. We're going to be doing this again March 29th, same time, same channels you've been tuning into, March the 29th, Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Look forward to seeing you next week. God bless. Have a great rest of the week. And if you do need anything, please call North Main Street Church of God at 724-285-4214. Again, that's 724-285-4214. And dial the extension to get a hold of a pastor on call. God bless you. We'll talk to you soon.